Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show designed to help you win at work, love, and life. Now, we know you have what it takes to reach your full potential. And that's why every week we share with you interviews and strategies to help you develop the right social skills and mindsets to succeed. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. If you love this show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a quick review on iTunes. It helps us get amazing guests like someone we have today, none other than Robert Rosenberg. Now, Robert has been the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts for 35 years, and it's an absolutely fascinating story. His new book, Around the Corner to Around the World, is about the lessons he learned while growing the company from a small regional family business to one of the best-known brands in the world. Welcome to the show, Robert. So excited to chat. So Robert, I have to say, growing up, my grandfather's favorite place to escape to, anytime that the family or my grandmother had gotten too much for him, he was always scooping me up. I lived down the street and we would always go off to Dunkin' Donuts and hide out. And it was for him, it was having his coffee and his bear claw and the paper and he could sit there for hours. And any time there was any of that frictionary, he was about to lose his top. He found Dunkin' Donuts to be a place that he can hide out. What do you think of that, Robert? I would say, Johnny, that wherever I go, people always share with me their favorite Dunkin' Donuts story. It's usually, as a child growing up, they go with a parent and they pick out their favorite donut. I have to say, you stumped me. This is this is a brand new one for me. <laughs> this is the first time I've heard of this as a grandparent's escape. So I'm going to have to add it to my repertoire of among my favorite stories. You know, there are 5 million Dunkin' Donuts customers around the world. So each of them has their own unique story. You know something? And it warms my heart to hear that kind of story in terms of how people use the brand. For me, it was going with him. And I, of course, as you mentioned, to be able to pick out my donut or a couple of donuts from that huge rack, what young nine-year-old doesn't want to be in front of that, having that opportunity. So it always made me smile anytime he wanted to go over there. <laughs> so it's a lifetime memory. And that warms me. That is a great story. And thank you for sharing it. So Robert, to get this started, the book was so fascinating learning about your leadership journey, but also the history of Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, that is an iconic brand. I had no idea that it was originally part of a small family food business that grew into an international success. That story starts with you taking over for your father in the middle of an epic battle with your uncle. Can you paint this picture for our audience of what you were getting yourself into after business school? I was uh, 
I'll put it kindly, a cocky 25-year-old <laughs> graduate. I had sort of virtually grown up over the store. My father and my uncle were in business together. They were brother-in-laws, and they ran this industrial feeding business. And that business after the war had grown. My dad was an eighth grade educated kid, but a real talent for business. My uncle was a CPA, a much different kind of guy. They were partners and they had this industrial feeding business, which were the trucks that would go around the factories. This was after the Second World War. So we're talking about 1946, 47. And they would feed employees that would come out of small office buildings or construction sites. And that business grew rather dramatically. But you know, the vending machines came along sort of in the late 1940s and started to put a crimp in that business. They had heard that there was a donut shop down the street that made more money out of one donut shop than it did out of its 20 root trucks that sold donuts wholesale all over the town. So the partners, you know, intuitively decided, well, that may be the answer to keep their business dreams alive in terms of how to make a diversification move out of a business that was now starting to struggle. And they opened up a store in Quincy, Massachusetts, on the road to Cape Cod, called the Open Kettle in 1948. And lo and behold, it, it wasn't very successful. <laughs> it was in a little stucco building with no windows. And it called the Open Kettle, but inside they had great coffee and they had featured the 28 varieties of donuts. There were a series of happenstances and sort of the role that luck and second chances play in life. They also do in business. And things weren't tough enough with opening up a donut shop no more successful than all the other thousand donut shops that were open in Massachusetts in 1940. The guy across the street decided he's going to open one too. So before they knew it, they had hired the architect and the architect came in and said, you know, we're going to have to rip this stucco hot down. We're going to have to reopen this up, put a California style. You guys would like this California style outrigger, see-through fishbowl effect as a store. And, you know, Open kettle doesn't really say anything. A chicken, you pluck a chicken. What do you do with a donut? You dunk a donut. And that was how the chain got restarted. And what was a $1,000 a week open kettle reopened in 1950 as a $5,000 a week Dunkin' Donut shop with donuts selling at 55 cents a dozen and coffee selling for a dime. And that was the beginning of an empire. The partners couldn't get along. Uh, my father bought my uncle out. I went off to college and came back and found out that my father had spun out a lot of different businesses, and now his business is called Universal Food System. And what did my uncle do? My uncle took the money, and he decided to start a competitive donut chain, not encumbered with all these other businesses. And my uncle was now enjoying the reputation of the guy that really started the donut business to my father's everlasting chagrin, pulling the hair out from his head. He, he didn't like to lose. And uh, long story short, he tried to sell a business, an executive vice president, in, who couldn't solve the problem. And he turned to his 25-year-old son and said, you know, take it over and see what you can make out of all of this. This hodgepodge of businesses called Universal Food Systems, which is what I did. It took a bunch of weeks to think about it and uh, finally decided that the hunch I had while in business school really might prove to be right by narrowing the focus, niching down, burnishing up the diamond in the rough out of the eight businesses. One of them was called Dunkin' Donuts. And they had uh, about 100 stores when I got there. Mr. Donut had 80. And the next five years was a battle of our lives to see who was going to emerge as a king of the donut field. The donut <laughs> wars was on. Now, over the years, we've worked with some clients who've faced a similar situation of taking over a family business and the pressures that comes along with that, as well as 
now as a youngster stepping into that leadership role, obviously with your father running the business and the respect that he garnered with the team, how did you step into that role and what did you do to earn the respect to become that leader? Basically, uh, called together the team and started to plan with them. We, there were a lot of emergencies, but basically we started to chart a new strategy. What did we want to be? We were going to basically exit and starve for resources. The other little businesses that were there, Pancake House, a vending machine company and a cafeteria company, a hamburger chain, a la McDonald's. We were lots of different businesses. So we were basically going to focus on that. And the 26 stores that had opened the year before I got there were all food donut shops. They varied in size. They varied in locations. They varied in store design, menus. Some of them had breakfast. Uh, most of them had scrambled eggs and bacon for breakfast and hot dogs and hamburgers for lunch. It, it was really a, what I would call a hodgepodge. And so what we did as a team, we worked together to design a strategy of what we wanted to be. We were going to go to market with a standard 20-seat Dunkin' Donut shop, standardized menu, standardized pricing, standardized configuration. And we were going to focus our energies in certain SMSAs, those are statistical marketing areas. There are about 300 of them were back then in the United States. We were going to only grow in 20 or so where we could really build distribution and build ad weight and build brand. We thought brand had value. We weren't sure how to measure it. We came to understand that later. But those were the things that we did. We narrowly focused very successfully and we were off and running. And I caught a few early breaks that came my way. Now, I'm sure there were disagreements with your dad at times on that transition. And it can be tough when you want to do your best and fulfill your dreams, but they don't always align, certainly, especially with your father. Did you run into any of those situations? And how did you deal with persuading your dad to go along with this plan? That's a great question. <laughs> the answer <laughs> to your question is yes, certainly. <laughs> My dad and I had different lives. My dad was an eighth grade educated guy. He had grown up in the depression. He was scarred by the depression. He never had any money. He was uh, insecure about having a little nest egg or you know, in those days, a million dollars was a big nest egg, but he wanted to be a millionaire and he thought he had earned it by what he had accomplished. So he was trying to continually sell the business. So as it was growing, I kept finding myself in front of prospective buyers and we had you know, to do some tussling about really what we stood for. He left the day-to-day -day business really to me and to operate the business. So I wouldn't say that we had major policy differences or strategic differences. It was much more of style. And I was trying to fight Mr. Donut on one hand, make my dad happy. And on the other hand, trying to keep the business from being sold. And that was a hard juggling act. And to keep that all quiet, because I felt it was hard to feel the team to be competitive every day. One, they knew that the owner really had one eye out the door. So that was really where an awful lot of, of the tension played out. And I had to design a system in my own head as to when do you sell a business. And I was able to convince my dad to hold on. I promised him that we would go public. And because earnings had gone from 100000 in 1963, pre-tax profits, to eight or $900,000 by 1968, five years later, we were the third company after McDonald's Kentucky Fried Chicken to go public. So my dad still kept the majority of the stock. And that day, February 6th, 1968, a day that I will never forget, <laughs> he pocketed $4.5 million and was the millionaire he always wanted to be and still ended up with about 50 or 60% of the company. So, so it, was, uh, it was a very successful first five years. And that was what it kept him. That's what kept him in. It was always this notion that McDonald's had gone public successfully, Kentucky Fried Chicken had gone out, and we were about to go third. And 
I could always hold that carrot out and that promise. And that was enough to keep them in. In the book, you talk about building out your leadership skills and there's an art and a science to it. And I'd love to start with the art because those are the skills, the soft skills, the tougher ones for many of us to learn. And they're not classically taught. So how are you able to grow your empathy, creativity, and tap into that aspiration as a young MBA graduate who had this opportunity, but also all of the stress that was going on around the transition of power? First of all, I didn't know the difference. I had never had another <laughs> job. So this is really, I mean, I had worked as a kid as a manager and a store manager and other things, but I'd never worked on corporate office. And in fact, my conference table was a long, long, it was the only meeting room we had. So I could be holding quarter one end of the thing and they could have Duncan Oda University with all the trainees in the other. So I didn't know the difference. So for me, it was normal. And I would love to tell you that I came to the job fully baked at 25. That's not true. <laughs> I, I was just partially baked. I understood the importance of strategy for a while. And then I messed it up in the next five year era. But the, the other skills, the, the sort of what we now would call emotional intelligence skills, and that book hadn't been written until 1995, many, many years later. But fundamentally, that was a lot of trial and error and learning and kicking some stones and taking full responsibility for growing up and maturing. And that came from failure, didn't it damn close to failure. Sometimes, in my view, in my experience, that were better teachers than success. In my case, success of the first five years was the impediment to future success. I became arrogant. I shot from the hip. I became intuitive. I thought I knew better. And the fact of the matter is I didn't. As the company started to grow, it needed processes. It needed it need boards. It needed ways to be able to measure much more solidly in terms of how to design a plan going forward a broader, diverse group of teammates at all levels. And all of that came slow but sure. And I would say the big leap forward for me came at a transformational moment. As I said, the first five years were successful. But then after that, I changed the mission from all the focus to niche down business. I changed the strategy to be a diversified franchising company. Big mistake. Big mistake. We want to get into that because that is the ups and downs of life. And any young entrepreneur and business owner has to go through those. And you mentioned your arrogance and hubris, but I had also heard you mention that you had lost your target. And as for AJ and I of business owners for the last 15 years, we have battled that as well at times and can understand if you're shooting at the wrong thing, your company can go upside down rather quickly. So I would love to hear more about how you guys lost your target. And in fact, you mentioned earlier that you were able to be successful in those five years because of making your brand specifically target oriented. You brought the niche down and you were able to nail it. So what had happened when it went public to where you had lost that target? Remember, the business couldn't draw a million and a half dollars in 1963, went public at $20 million in 1968. And within a matter of a year or so, it was the darling of Wall Street. It was a high kin to the high tech companies of today. So here I am at 30 years old, sitting on a business now worth $150 million, selling at 60 times earnings, beyond intoxicating. Yeah. And seductive. Yeah. And as a result of that, and we had grown from a small base, not realizing the law of large numbers, the larger the base got, the more you had to earn in order to keep up. So 
trying to keep at an aiming point of 50% in terms of my objective earnings per share, clearly within a few years may be larger than the gross national product of the United States. That never occurred to me. I had the wrong target and began to have my desire to keep my stock price up and looking at Wall Street instead of looking at my business, what my capabilities, what the capabilities of the company were. And all the way through my career, there was always this tension between exploitation and experimentation. Experimentation is doing new things like my dad did. And I began to do again in 1968, 69, 70. And exploitation, which is taking some of the things that you have within your business and finding new ways of improving it, geographically diversifying, new product diversification. There are lots of things that you can do sometimes with that business that you have within your midst. And there's always, that's the art sort of, of management, that balance between exploitation and experimentation. And when we got it right, generally it was more narrow niched as when it was right, we were very successful. And when we got too far afield, we generally ended up having trouble. And that was always the tension. It became very clear to me, I couldn't grow it at 50% compound. And when we reduced that down to you know, 15% or so, it was much more achievable. We could experiment and still have money left over to do some R&D and still you know, plant some saplings for future growth. And we could more achieve our objectives. But I had to go through that five-year time period, I think, to really get hit upside the head to really understand those lessons. And as I said, it was the best learning I could have ever gone through. And uh, that's how I found very useful. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. 
We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And obviously that failure and potentially losing your job and losing the business that you've built in, in your ownership is immensely leveling, especially at that age. And yet failure is a part of business and a part of growing businesses. And, and now you serve on boards and, and you advise other businesses who also are facing similar failures. So, you know, what have those lessons taught you and how you view failure now? And, and how do you approach guiding these other companies who are facing similar setbacks and failures, especially in this environment that we're in currently. Don't be afraid of failure. Failure is part of the game. If you're not failing, you're not trying. And you can't be you know, 100% accurate until you actually get on the playing field and see how it plays. It just It's impossible to do it in consumer and focus group sessions and asking customers. And oftentimes, they don't know what they like or want until they physically see, touch, and feel what the options are. So you really sometimes just have to try it and prototype small enough, edge out. I'm a big believer in edging out. If it looks good, go like, you know, keep watering it and grow it. And if it doesn't look good, pull back, recalculate if you have to, try it again. And if it doesn't work, second or third time, pull it. And sometimes the first time, if it doesn't look like it's got legs, pull it, admit defeat, walk away, try not to put too much R&D and capitalize it because it's horrific to try to, you know, take a write-off. The, the larger that number keeps growing, the harder it is to pull the plug when it doesn't look right. The more you rationalize, it'll, it's just around the corner. It's a little bit more money, a little bit more time. Oh, We've been there. If you're a public company, once you tell everybody about your R&D, you know, then it becomes a topic of conversation. It, then it's another impediment for pulling the plug. So the kind of lessons I walked away with are, Try to expense your R&D as best you can unless it's really major and it's life-changing. Try to expense it within your budget. Take a little bit less growth rate that year or those years while you're encouraging that. And number two, generally don't go mainstream, blare the horn till you're ready to go prime time. In other words, you know, when you're working on speculative things, they're speculative and, and they remain in-house until it's ready to disclose. So it doesn't become the topic of conversation because... I mean, in the real world, those are real problems when you tell a lot of people what you're working on. Everyone wants to know. And, and before you know it, it's harder and harder to pull the plug when it doesn't work. And a lot of stuff doesn't work. Yeah. And I feel like everyone wants their ideas to become successes. And especially if you've had a few successes already, you want that next idea to fall in line. And when it doesn't, that tension it creates and the, the crisis it creates internally, mentally, 
is often a time when we'll lose our willpower, we'll lose our motivation, we'll feel really defeated. So what have you done to one, dust yourself off in those situations where your experiments didn't work? And what do you now tell when you advise other companies who have that sunk cost fallacy, who were so dead set that this experiment was going to be the winner and you had to cut the cord and, and admit defeat? And basically, persistence is the most <laughs> important. I mean, if you list the qualities that get you through, it really is persistence because life is lumpy and business is lumpy and you are going to encounter setbacks. They just come with the territory and call them setbacks. Don't call them failures. They're setbacks. And it's all how you hold it. I mean, you really create yourself in language. So it's how you hold a lot of that. I mean, with human beings, that really is where the power lies in language and what your narrative is. So if your narrative is, you know, let me tell you about what happened to me and I, how I investigated into this thing that I thought was a real winner and it didn't work out. You know, if I come at it that way, it's more likely I'm likely to try it again as opposed to, whoa, it's me, nothing's working out. A lot of it is how you hold it in your own head. And I think it's important to share those stories around the false starts. You know, everyone looks at the iconic brand now and and I didn't even know the backstory and reading the book was so fascinating in that realm. And I think another part of the story here is, you know, where do you look to who is your support outside of the company in these situations? And I know we talk to a lot of leaders on this show and it can be very lonely at the top as a CEO having to make all of those difficult decisions, face the board, face down shareholders. So did you have an outlet? Did you have your own social group and people in your life that you could count on in those situations where you were feeling rattled? Unusual. My closest friends were my teammates. For the most part, my best supporters were my own teammates. I loved what I did. I loved the people I did it with. I felt comforted by them. Uh, there wasn't anything we couldn't discuss together. We really were very, a truthful bunch of people that understood the importance of trust and we trusted each other. We came from different backgrounds, many of us, different educational levels, but we worked together for a long period of time and we won. We had a lot of wins and that keeps us together. That's, yeah. a, that's a hell of an elixir is winning. And, you know, other than the second five-year period, the next four periods after that, after we had learned our lesson, were pretty much wins. You know, we kept growing at 15% a year for the next 20 years. And that's powerful. And, and so that we could, our stock options allowed us to punch way above our weight in terms of attracting, retaining great people. But that's where I got my comfort. That's how I looked upon my job. I, I love my job and I love the people I work with. Well, there was something I just wanted to bring up in the 80s, which was that the incredible marketing that still sticks into my brain today, the guy who is going to make the donuts, which is became a slogan. It became, you could even say it was a meme before there was memes all the way back then in the eighties. And that was incredibly successful marketing. And we all use those things. We still use those things today. It's absolutely true. However, in 1992, we did a positioning study and we decided that we were no longer going to be bakery-led. We were going to be beverage-led. We were a beverage business because we had changed the nature of the way the business was. And we had to retire Fred the Baker, who was the lovable character, Michael Vail. Mm -hmm. He had won us three Cleos in 17-year campaign. It was a 17-year campaign. Wow. But wow. to be replaced by an equally phenomenal campaign today, America Runs on Duncan, which is a spectacular campaign, just as effective. But it reflects a change in strategy in the business. And it was Larry Bird. We had gone, we had hired a car. We drove Michael Vail through Boston. 
Everybody cheered him as retirement. We did commercials where Larry Bird was coaching him that year because Larry Bird was retiring that year on how to retire and find satisfaction in retirement. But it was a, a change. And it was a wrenching one. It was didn't come easy. You can well imagine after so much success, we had to we had to change direction. Yeah. Because the consumer was changing, the nature of our business was changing. And we became more of a much more of a beverage business. So today the Dunkin' Donuts brand is probably, uh, I would say, 60% beverages at least. Where years ago, when I first started, it was probably 40% beverages if they had done a flip. Your last two answers really speak to your ability to find and attract talent and then create a culture that supported you. And in your answer of you know feeling supported in the team, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more around hiring. Because I know whether you own a business and you have to hire people or you're an employee and you want to be hired, there are certain signals that obviously need to be sent for you to identify this talent. So, you know, what was your thought process, especially in the early years going in and attracting all of these amazing teammates who supported you through all of those eras? And, you know, what are those lessons that you pass on now when you advise other companies around hiring talent? I'm a little bit more measured and thought through what it was. Back then, it was basically gut feel. But the three things I would advise is, is number one, when you're hiring, is define the assignment very carefully. The more clearly you define the assignment, the much more likely you are to pick the right person. So that would be the first thing I would suggest. The second thing I would suggest is do not try to find someone who's good at all things, is that basically it's very hard to remediate a person's weaknesses. It's far easier to build on their strengths. And when you view it as a team, it's a team of complementary skills, points of view. You don't expect the CFO to have the same kind of orientation as the head of marketing. They're going to have different orientations in life, and you've got to understand that. And that's part of sort of the orchestration of the team. Pick for complementarity and the nature of the assignment. And the third thing would be to match the culture. In our case, our culture was teamed. I was more comfortable in a collaborative, collegial environment. I wasn't a guy on a white horse. I'm not an authoritarian by nature. That just I wasn't comfortable that way. I, I like to share responsibility and share the reward and the acknowledgments. We were winners. We loved to win. We were competitive as hell. We were trustworthy. We could trust each other. Everybody's word with their bond. And you always knew they were going to deliver. So, I mean, I tried to match culture, complementarity and define the assignment. And I would hope that those three kind of uh, approaches would work. But I also was well served by Rick Power, who was my HR guy for years, and later Deborah Rainier at, at Baskin, terrific HR people who understood the tempo of the organization, had feels for it, didn't have to do a lot of usage and attitude studies and surveys within the organization, although we did do them. But Generally speaking, the HR person was a huge help to me. And that would I always advise any CEO where I'm on the board. When a company gets to a certain size, that'd be one of the first things I highly recommend. Strong HR person. It's a key role. And you mentioned taking responsibility and sharing responsibility when there are wins. When it comes to the failures and the setbacks, that's often the hardest for young leaders to take that responsibility. It's easier to point the finger and blame outside external factors or team members or throw people under the bus even worse. In those moments where you had to step up and take responsibility on the misses, 
how did you go into those meetings and how did you prepare yourself to take on that responsibility and, and manage the team in a way that allowed them to follow along and, and build that supportive environment? There was shame associated with failing back in the 70s. I felt terrible. But you have to sort of gulp it down. When things go wrong, if you're the top person, you take the blame. You take the responsibility. There's just no other way around it. Your responsibility. You made the judgment. You made the allocation. That comes with a job. If you don't want that job and if you don't want that pain, don't take the job because you're not going to be able to avoid it. And ultimately, it just became a way of life. It seemed to me to work better. When things don't work out, you take the pain. And when things do work out, you share the, the rewards and acknowledgments. That's just the way it works. And in my experience, it works out best that way. And that's what you get paid for. Or that's what your job is. Forget what you get paid for. But that's what your job is. And, you know, we're living it in public life today where that does, isn't the case. And uh, you can see the kind of pain that that creates and the ripple that it creates in a whole society when it doesn't happen. And I believe strongly in that. That's a, a real key element of leadership. And we completely agree. And it's an important part that we've tried our best over the last 15 years to bring to our leadership as well, that you can't ask team members to put in all the work and the sacrifice if you're unwilling to take responsibility when things don't go the way you want them to. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing these incredible lessons with our audience. And it was magical to read the backstory of Duncan and the experience that I grew up on and everything else that went into building that empire. And we really appreciate you joining us. You're more than welcome. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed the time spent with both of you. So I got to say, AJ, listening to Robert, that was so much fun. It was like sitting around on Thanksgiving, listening to your grandfather tell war stories. How cool. Except those were boardroom <laughs> stories. Absolutely fascinating. Exactly. And really, it's all about surrounding yourself with amazing people. I love that he shared how important his team was to his success and how he was able to build around that amazing team to create one of the world's best known brands. What an epic story. I also enjoyed the fact that he was very open about all the mistakes that he has made over the years as well, which allows me to feel much better about all the mistakes that we make. <laughs> <laughs> Especially as a youngster, letting your hubris get the best of you to growing one of my favorite brands, certainly in coffee. It was a fascinating story, and I love that he came on to share it with us. Absolutely. This week's shout out, goes to well it goes to me it goes with our it goes to our instagram aj because we've been doing instagram lives every week and, and michael is joined aj is joined and we do these on thursdays but if you really enjoy the show and want some more great interviews and a more bite-sized actionable punch we'll check out our instagram we got Chris Duff and Judy Ho, Coach Brad, a lot of folks that you've recognized on the show who have come back, but also we've reached out and we've gotten some new people that are coming on as well. So join us over at Instagram for our bite-sized lives. That's right. And the awesome part about that is you actually get to interact with all the great show guests we've had on. You can find us at The Art of Charm on Instagram for all those great lives. Let us know. We're always excited to hear from you as well. You can send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions, or you can email us questions at theartofcharm.com. Now, you may have heard we launched a new online workshop, and we're so excited to share it with you. 
Yes, it's called Captivate and Connect. And we want to take your conversation skills to the next level so you can instantly mesmerize anyone you meet and build deep rapport with them, even over Zoom. You don't need to be the loudest or flashiest person in the room, and you definitely don't need to pretend to be somebody else. All you need are the right strategy and tools to let what's already inside of you shine so you can captivate and connect with anyone online or in person. If you love the show and you want to grow your social skills in 2021, check out our Captivate and Connect workshop. Join today for only $27 at theartofcharm.com slash captivate. Now, before we wrap, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Head on over to your favorite podcast player and rate this show. It would really mean the world to us, and it allows us to get on these fantastic guests who've been joining us week in and week out. We really appreciate all the kind words. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. All right, guys, until next week, I'm Johnny. I'm AJ. Have a great one. Thank you.